everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful you've decided to spend a few minutes today here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am bringing you a library episode, and if you're not uh, familiar with what that is, or maybe you've been listening for a little bit and you do know uh, what that is, but I'm just bringing you some of the best stuff that I've learned from uh, recently and talking about some of the, I don't know if lessons is the right word, but some of the things that I am pulling from these things, some of the things that uh, these things have made me think about, or some of the things uh, in some cases that they're they're directly talking about. And so that's what this episode is about. I usually give you a couple of different recommendations all the way from movies to uh, books to articles and to quotes to so on and so forth. Now, before we dive into and I talk about some of the things that I've been learning from recently, I do want to let you know about a couple other things. Uh, if you are enjoying this content, I want to tell you about two brand new ways that uh, you can you know, continue to learn from stuff that we're doing here in the Learner's Corner podcast. The one is a uh, weekly newsletter that I'll be doing. It's similar to the library episodes. I'll be giving you a couple of things that I'm learning from, some of which you know, will be covered in the library episode and some of them won't because there's just not enough time to cover everything. And the other thing is that I am starting a Patreon as well to where we're going to go in uh, a little bit deeper into some of the things that I'm learning from. Again, uh, some of them may be covered here on the library episode, uh, on the library episodes, um, but a lot of them won't be. Uh, but there'll be deeper dives into it. You know, we'll take a book and uh, focus on, you know, maybe some of the things that have shaped me or some of the things that have shaped my thinking in it. And the other thing that I'll be doing is releasing a lot of, um, a lot of like my, uh, I, I guess I would call it like my uh, creator owned stuff. I don't know what you would want to, I don't know what you would call it, but a lot of the things that I'm, that I'm thinking about and framing those more into uh, more coherent episodes as well. And so I'll be releasing uh, two a month, basically every other week. And so I'll end, uh, you know, sign up for the newsletter to find out more about Patreon. Just look in the episode links and we'll link to all of that stuff as well. If you have uh, stuff that you would love us to cover on the podcast or stuff that you're interested in learning about, hit me up at learners corner podcast at gmail.com. And I would love to, you know, talk with you there as well. And a huge driving, uh, factor in the Learner's Corner podcast is really this core belief of we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything. And so I want to tell you about the first thing that I learned from recently, and it is the movie Spider-Man No Way Home. Now, by the time that uh, this comes out, uh, you it has been out for um, several weeks now, and so you may have gotten a chance to see it, but if you don't, don't worry. I'm, uh, I'm gonna. Well, I'll just safely say, uh, if you don't want to be spoiled for it, I'm not gonna spoil too much of it. But uh, we will talk a little bit about it now. As I've talked before on the podcast, one of the things that I love and really have gotten into over the past uh, couple of years is comics. You know, some Marvel comics and then some, you know, independent comics as well. That goes back, my love of superheroes goes back so much further than that. You know, I grew up loving Spider-Man. He was my favorite hero. And I think part of the reason why is because my cousin JL loved him. And, you know, we were uh, we were around each other so much time growing up. And he's uh, four years older than I am. And so because he loved him, I grew to love him. 
as well. And we would play uh, Spider-Man, you know, all of the time. And both of us would be Spider-Man. You know, there wouldn't just be one. We would both be Spider-Man and we would save, you know, the city from, you know, all the different villains. And we would come up with all of these, you know, insane uh, literal story arcs that we would then play out as kids. And so, you know, we did that for years and years. And I remember, you know, whenever we heard about the original Spider-Man movie coming out with, uh, you know, Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst and William Dafoe and being so excited for it because we really hadn't seen anything before that at one point. And it was released in 2002. I've got to tell you, we we probably saw that we saw that movie so many times. I bet you I saw that movie like 10 times in theater as a kid and probably, you know, seven of them, seven of them were with jail. And just seeing it and going, "Wow, this is amazing. This is absolutely a spectacular." And then it got even more so with Spider-Man 2, which, you know, by a lot of people's definition is uh is, you know, the the best Spider-Man movie, one of the best superhero movies of all time and the excitement just continued to grow. And then Spider-Man three happened. Uh, and if you're not familiar, Spider-Man three in the large majority opinion, not as good as Spider-Man two, or definitely not as good as Spider-Man two and not as good as Spider-Man one. And, you know, it was, it was cool because you get to see some of these characters again, you get to return to them, but you just know it's not on the same level as the previous films have been. And then they, you know, they tried to make a fourth movie, but that didn't come to fruition. And so they decided to reboot the entire franchise with, you know, by basically, you know, starting over again. And they decided to start over with, you know, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone. And I remember in 2012, whenever the movie was coming out, which again was 10 years after the original Spider-Man movie came out and five years after uh, the the Spider-Man 3 movie had come out. I remember watching the movie and I enjoyed uh, different aspects of the movie, you know, especially um, Andrew Garfield and uh, Emma Stone's relationship, you know, both as uh, Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy. And I remember trying to convince myself that it was good as good as Spider-Man 2. And that had reached the heights of the previous Spider-Man films. Because I think that's kind of how, I think that's a little bit of how we're made. Is that we want we want things to be better than it was, or at least reach the, the, the same uh, level that we've experienced before. But it wasn't enough. And as much as I wanted to tell myself, it just wasn't. And then two years later, Spider, the Amazing Spider-Man Two came out, and that might be my most disappointing, most disappointing that I've ever been leaving a theater because my expectations and my hopes and my desires were so high for such an amazing, literally such an amazing film, and it did not meet that. And I remember leaving the theater in 2014 and going. Man, is this is there ever going to be another sp- good Spider-Man film again? And a couple of years later, it finally seemed like we we might get one. And they decided to reboot Peter Parker again with Tom Holland, and he returned in Captain America: Civil War. And I remember him showing up in in the first, you know, with Tony uh, Stark visiting him in Queens, 
and then showing up in the big battle and just being in awe and astonished by that. And then he continued to show up throughout the cinematic universe. You know, he had a couple of his own films on Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home, and then he showed up in Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. And he was good, and I liked, and I really liked Tom Holland a lot as well. And then you start to find out about, oh, there's they're coming out with a third film, and it's going to be called, you know, Spider-Man No Way Home. And I remember I began to get nervous because I remember thinking, is this going to be possible? Like, are they going to screw this one up again? Because they started... They started, or there, there were rumors that started that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are going to show back up as Spider-Man. Both Spider-Man in this multi-verse film. And I became nervous be- because I was afraid of being disappointed again in something that meant so much to me. Because Spider-Man means more to me than just the, the hero. Uh, just the hero. He's a part of my childhood. And he's a part of my my friendship with my cousin, JL. And growing up with him and having something like that, even if it's a piece of fiction, even if it's a character in fiction, you're just afraid of somebody messing that up because it means so much to you. And so I remember being nervous walking into the theater. And I, and I remember whenever I first started seeing the reviews for it, And then I saw the movie, and I was not disappointed. And not only, you know, met my expectations, but it far exceeded them. And, you know, the thing that it made me think about, here's here's a couple of things that it made me think about. You see, because I don't know what it would have been like to only have watched Spider-Man No Way Home. That seems very odd for me to someone to do, though I know that that has happened on many occasions, probably. Or... And I, and I don't know what it's like to only have watched the MCU Spider-Man films, but I do know what it's like to have watched every Spider-Man film starting 20 years ago. And it's emotional whenever you think about it. And the reason why it's emotional is because everything hits harder whenever you understand Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man and everything that he's been through. And you understand Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and everything that he's been through. And so just as I've been reflecting on this movie, here's a couple of things that I've been thinking about. That what happens in the present can mean more when you understand what happened in the past. That what's happening right now can have greater meaning, can have greater impact when you understand what took place before. The same with understanding, you know, what happened with, Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man and Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man in their movies, it makes a greater impact whenever you see them show up. And, you know, one of one of the classic examples of it is whenever you see Andrew Garfield, you know, jump down and catch uh, MJ, which is very reminiscent of something that took place in his movies and his, in his failed attempt to rescue Gwen. Another one is that what happens in the present can reinterpret what happened in the past. And it's amazing because there is so much talk right now of, man, are we going to... And there's there's a little bit of talk of, you know, a, uh, a Spider-Man 4 with Tobey Maguire, him re- reappearing. Um, but the really hot one that happened 
several weeks afterwards is, man, we got to get an amazing Spider-Man 3 with Andrew Garfield, which is incredible whenever you think, like, those films, especially Spider-Man, the Amazing Spider-Man 2, no one liked, like, no one liked especially the Amazing Spider-Man 2. And now they're like, yeah, we want, we want a third film. That what happens in the present, what happened in Spider-Man No Way Home, can radically change what happened in The Amazing Spider-Man 2. And in fact, we could go from not wanting an Amazing Spider-Man 2 to wanting, or not wanting an Amazing Spider-Man 3 after The Amazing Spider-Man 2 to wanting an Amazing Spider-Man 3 after Spider-Man No Way Home. And I think another one is what happened in the past doesn't have to stay painful. And it's the same with Andrew Garfield. Maybe not being the the most important Spider-Man. And, and maybe some people's eyes to all of a sudden he is, he's won it again. And I think the last one is that a painful past doesn't have to mean a painful future. That just because you've been hurt in the past, that does not mean that it has to be a painful future. That does not mean that it has to be that what happened in the past doesn't have to dictate what happened in the future. You see, in a lot of these ideas, it's based around, you know, this, this comic book term, which is called uh, the retcon, that the past can be retconned. And retcon is short for retroactive continuity. And it is when a piece of new information imposes a different interpretation on previously described events. New information is introduced and it changes how we view the past. And in fact, we could go from not liking something in the past to discovering something in the present that changes how we view the past. And that's exactly what Spider-Man No Way Home did for Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. And as I mentioned before, to the point that people are literally calling for him to return to the role. And I think what's amazing is that that doesn't have to be true only for fiction. That can be true in real life. As well. The next thing that I want to talk about is uh, this interview that was done with Benjamin Percy. Benjamin uh, Ben Percy is a uh, comic book writer. He is currently writing uh, the big X Men event that is happening called the X Lives and X Deaths of Wolverine, and he's also on the uh, comic Wolverine and on X Force right now. And as I've said before, I love comics, and sometimes I, uh, whenever I love something, I get really obsessive about it, and I want to learn everything that I can about it. And so I've been listening to a lot of different interviews that uh, that this guy has been doing, that a lot of uh, the the other you know X Men or X uh, writers have been doing as well. And he did this interview, and there's a couple things that uh, really stood out to me that have to do with stories, and that I've I've been learning about. And the first one is this is that stories have a greater impact when they are of the moment. That the best, or I shouldn't say the best stories, but stories have a greater impact whenever they speak to the moment of what is happening in in the wider world, what is happening in real life as well. It hits harder because it means more to us. And Ben Percy talks about that, and he says the reason one of the one of the reasons why the X Men comics are resonating so much right now is because we're in a time to where 
people have had enough, whether that be with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and people saying, hey, we, we've had enough with that or, uh, or just with, uh, with racism as well or with the Me Too movement or regardless of whatever the thing is, is that people are tired of, of what they're going through and just said, I've had enough. And that's similar to what is happening uh, in the X-Men comics right now. You know, uh, mutants have been, you know, hunted and killed and uh, have been uh, persecuted in, in the comics world. And they're reaching a point in the comics where they've said, we've had enough and we're going to, uh, we're going to establish our our own nation. But regardless of any of that, just the idea that comics, they're not just comics, but stories have a greater impact when we're there at the moment. It could be the right time in the right place and realizing that that's true for older stories as well as that sometimes a story might hit in the moment and it doesn't hit you know 10 years or 15 years down the line or that it doesn't hit in the moment and it and 50 years down the line, it hits. Another quick one that I want to give is that the best villains are an external representation of an internal struggle. And he talked about, you know, how the villain, the best villains are the ones that are almost like a mirror to the hero because they force them to deal with things that they, they, they force them to deal with things in themselves. And he talks about how uh, he uses Batman as an example quite a bit. You know, for Batman, and uh, you know, he compares him to Two Face. Like Two Face forces him to deal with the the duplicity nature or the two sides of his life. You know, there's Batman and there's Bruce Wayne, and and a lot of uh, Two Face stories that faces that causes him to face that. Or with Killer Croc, you know, who is uh, very very savage and forces uh, Batman to deal with his brutality. And you and you may be going, yeah, but that's not always the case, and that's why he's saying. Hey, whenever villains are at their best, they force the heroes to deal with an internal struggle of their own. That the villains are the external representation of an internal struggle for the hero. So that's a couple of things that I'm picking up from story. Uh, a book that I've read recently, which has been very fascinating, uh, is called Corruptible. And it's by Brian Kloss. And the subtitle is Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Now, it, it was a little bit slow uh, getting started, but this is a, the, the rest of the book, in my opinion, makes up for maybe the slow start of the book. And the book sets out to answer four main questions. Do worse people get power? Does power make people worse? Why do we let people control us who clearly have no business being in control? And how can we ensure that incorruptible people get into power and wield it justly? Here's a few things that stand out to me from that. He writes about how we're often more obsessed with how something or someone appears than with who they are or what they do. Do they look like a leader? Whatever your picture of a leader is, you know, are they, uh, are they attractive? Are they of a certain age? Are they, in, as, and maybe in some aspects, you know, are they, are they the gender that you think uh, a true leader or the best leader looks like. You know, what does, what does your picture of a leader look like? And he says, we often get 
more infatuated with our idea of what a picture, what our picture of a leader looks like than whether or not someone can actually lead. The next thing is this quote, we as humans are horrible, horribly inept at deciphering the difference between awful people and awful systems. We frequently mistake unfortunate situations for malicious intent. That's because of the fundamental attribution error. And what that is, is to where we attribute, you know, the mistakes or the failures that happen to us or that, that we're a part of as things outside of our control. And whenever other people, we view them as character flaws or character uh, defects. And he brings up that what if for the people that we're making villains into, what if they were just trying to make the best out of a bad situation and no matter what happened, it was going to be a bad situation? See, a decent person inheriting a bad system has to make choices that the person wouldn't make in a good system. They're forced into a scenario to where sometimes there are just bad options and it doesn't really matter. And they're being, and it's not like you get to go, oh, you know what? I'm not making a decision because we all know whenever you choose not to make a decision, that is making a decision as well. Now, here's the last thing from this book that I want to talk about. And it's why it appears that power corrupts. And there's so there's so many other things that uh, that I could talk about in this book. And I'm sure at, at some point uh, in another episode, you know, maybe on the Patreon or something, I'll I'll get into uh, more in depth because this uh, this book has just made me think about so many different things. But let me read you this quote from the book. For normal people, serious moral transgressions are avoidable. There's always another option, another path to avoid doing something repugnant. The overwhelming majority of people don't knowingly make decisions that ruin lives or snuff them out. Instead, we deflect such decisions to others. We elect or appoint or hire people to make unbearable choices that we couldn't face. In turn, the people we delegate authority to are sometimes thrust into situations in which all options are immoral. No matter what they do, it could have disastrous consequences. This is not to absolve, condone, or normalize grotesque acts of abuse and violence by those in power. Quite the contrary. Political leaders must be held accountable for any human rights abuses they authorize or enable. But it's worth remembering that sometimes people in power weigh up two awful options and try to take the lesser evil. In other words, you know, sometimes we don't want to make a decision and we maybe have the option not to do it. And so we press it on to another person. We hand it off for another person to deal with. That's why, as they mentioned, that's why we elect people. That's why people are the leaders. They have to make the tough calls when sometimes there are no good options. I think another thing that he talks about why it appears that power corrupts is that and this was, this was a little bit, uh, I had just never thought about it this way. He's like, sometimes people in power, uh, they just get better at their jobs. They get better at, uh, at mastering this. And he calls it, you know, authoritarian or authoritarian learning and I think, in, and to, to say it another way, is that the person who gets the power may have been corrupt, 
but they just figured out how to wield their authority better and that whether they had the authority or they didn't, they were always corrupt. And so no matter what level of power that they had, they were always going to wield it corruptly. But whenever they became, as they got better, they learned how, and it's such it's such a weird thing to say that they got better at wielding their power corruptly, but that's kind of how it is. Another reason why he talks about it appears that power corrupts is that leadership brings the opportunity to affect people. And so the question is, did power corrupt the person or did they just have an oppor- a greater opportunity to hurt people? Because leaders affect more people than than followers do. And the higher you go up in leadership, the greater impact your decisions have on them. And not only to hurt people, but to help people as well. And so did they have a greater opportunity to help people or did power corrupt them? That's the question. And I think the last one that he talks about is that people in power are more scrutinized than the rest of us. That people in power are constantly being watched. They're constantly being evaluated and, and, and we're paying more attention to them than people who don't have power. And so we're on the lookout more for things that, that tip us off to one way or another. Now, the last one that I want to talk about is an article from Russell Moore in Christianity Today. You know, it is a little over a year ago since the attack on the U.S. Capitol happened. And so Russell Moore wrote some uh, reflections on that and wrote about it. The article is called The Capitol Attack Signaled a Post-Christian Church, Not Merely a Post-Christian Culture. And again, all of this stuff is going to be linked to in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. He says, survey after survey shows that alarming numbers of white evangelicals believe the lie behind the attack, that the 2020 election had been stolen by a vast left-wing conspiracy that somehow included the conservative Republican governors and election officials in Georgia and Arizona. He also notes the increasing numbers of people who identify as evangelical, many of whom don't even attend church, because they assume that this is the religious designation for their political Movement. And that's pretty interesting because if you if you are in the church and you hear the term evangelical, realizing, oh, that may not like what I think evangelical means might not be what someone else thinks that evangelical means. And how the world is changing. America is changing. He goes on and says, as with the insurrection, in virtually every authoritarian authority. <laughs> authoritarian movement in history, an apocalyptic moment is an emergency requiring emergency measures. Thus, we get the cognitive dissonance of people who support the law and order and who sometimes quote Romans 13, who end up beating police officers and breaking through windows in order to shut down Congress's constitutional duty to count electoral votes. These are the people who who can ridicule the very words of Jesus Christ about turning the other cheek as naive and weak. Such is not is the sign not of a post-Christian culture, but of a post-Christian Christianity. Not a secularizing society, but of a paganizing church. 
that it's not the culture that is becoming more secularized. It's that the church has become more paganized, that we have we have taken <laughs> we have and this is uh I'm tr- I'm just gonna say it. We've we've taken Jesus off of the throne, even though you know he can't be taken off of the throne, but in our lives, he he we have moved him from being the directing thing to something else. And in this case, uh the the country or nationalism or our or idea of what that looks like. Russell goes on and says, it would be one thing if this were just a matter of the crowd attacking the Capitol that day. It's quite another when people, including people with highlights in their Bibles and prayer requests on their refrigerators, wave the attack away as a mere protest from which we should, quote unquote, move on. This represents more than a threat to American democracy, though that would be bad enough, but a threat to the witness of the church. Because whenever people see this and they see people who are, who, as I said, who attend church, who, you know, read their Bible and then proclaim violence as the solution against people who think differently, who believe differently than them, they just see people who attend church. And it's hard to make the distinction between followers of Jesus and this white evangelicalism or white nationalism, Christian nationalism, whatever, whatever you want to say. It's hard to see the difference between the two. And he concludes by saying uh, this, one cannot carry good news to people you might, if things get bad enough, have to beat up or kill One cannot bring about good by doing evil. One cannot stand for truth by employing lies. End quote. And I think this sets up a very, just a new reality that for those of us who are, who are leaders in the church, for those of us who are part of a church of realizing that this is part of the new reality and that we can't deny that this is happening. We can't pretend like this is happening, that this isn't happening. We have to live in the real world. We have to, and no matter how, how much we may not like it, how much, how, no matter how much we wish that things were different. And I think that means that it's the church's responsibility you know, the capital C church for, especially for those of us who are leaders in the church to talk about this, to acknowledge it and not run away from it, not deny it, but help pastor people and love people in the midst of it. And that doesn't mean condoning anything, but acknowledging their reality and dealing with it. One last thing I want to leave you with today is this quote from Diane Landberg. Quote, any leader or person with power who cannot, does not bend down and bestow dignity is using the power God has given to serve him or her self. That's all that I have for you today. To continue to learn from everything that we talked about today, look in the show notes. If you want more content, subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You know, 
check out Patreon as well. We'll be releasing new episodes here shortly, or we'll start releasing episodes here shortly. If you have something that you want us to talk about on the podcast, reach out to me at learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. That's all that I have for today. Uh, also, leave a rating, write a review. That would mean a lot. Also, uh, thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler for doing the podcast. Thanks for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. And that's all that I have for today. My name is Kayla Mason. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>